Welcome to Art of the Score, the podcast that explores, demystifies and celebrates some of the greatest soundtracks of all time from the world of film, TV and video games. I'm Andrew Poxon, and in each episode we'll be joined by Daniel Golding and Nicholas Buck as we check out a soundtrack we love, break down its main themes, explore what makes the score tick and hopefully impart our love of the world of soundtracks. Melbourne, city of the lockdown, crown jewel of Victoria, home of Australia's fourth best movie music analysis podcast, Art of the Score. But months had passed, and many wondered if they would ever hear the show again. Some even assumed it dead. To prevent the resurrection of the podcast's temporary hiatus, Andrew, Dan, and Nick broke into its crypt and stole its data. They raced deep into the desert, taking art of the score's corpse to the City of the Dead, the ancient burial site of forgotten and neglected shows. Fearing the show's power, they buried it deep under the ground, cursing it to remain undead for eternity. For 3,000 years, men and armies fought over this city not knowing what evil lay beneath it. And for 3,000 years, we, the descendants of Melbourne, kept watch. In episode 32, we crack open the sarcophagus and rummage through the ashes of a 1999 classic, The Mummy, directed by Stephen Summers, starring Brendan Fraser and Rachel Weisz, with an iconic score by the awe-inspiring Jerry Goldsmith, with orchestrations by Alexander Courage. The Mummy was a resurrection, if you will, of the Universal Pictures classic monster film genre and enjoyed huge success, bringing in well over 400 million US dollars at the box office and spawning multiple sequels, some of which are still watchable today. And joining me on our journey into the dark sands of the undead is composer, arranger, orchestrator, conductor and man who likes to paint himself in gold body paint when tending to his garden, it's Nicholas Buck. How you doing, Nick? <laughs> I'm great, guys. Look, I'm very excited for this score. It's been one of the huge misgivings of this podcast that we have yet to cover the great Jerry Goldsmith. And I think as a teenage boy growing up in the 90s, I think that was one of his best decades, actually. And um, The Mummy capped it off perfectly in 1999. So lots, lots of great stuff to, to dissect today. 
Indeed. And rounding out our cursed trio is a critic, university lecturer, writer, ABC radio host, and a man who believes that storing his glasses in a canopic jar each night will grant him eternal sight. It's Dan Golding. <laughs> How you doing, Dan? I'm doing good. Look, the glasses were a better move than storing my elbow patches, um, which I, I don't really know what that was supposed to achieve. But um, <laughs> I, it's, uh, it's, it's so good to to finally be getting to a Jerry Goldsmith. Of course, you know, on a technicality, we have already covered him through uh, his themes for the Star Trek TV shows, which we yes. analysed relatively early on in the podcast's yep. life. So that but staved off all of the um, yeah. all of the, the hate <laughs> mail we were getting over not getting to Goldsmith that's, by this point. That's right. Uh, yeah. However, <laughs> we've we've left it long enough, and mm. we have to we have to pay our dues to the uh, the great man. Yeah, um, he, he really is one of you know the the sort of handful of composers that I think people really view as iconic and iconic in 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 defining the whole. Hollywood sound and the sound of a lot of film franchises and you know I'll be interested to to see what people make of the mummy being the first full film score of Jerry's that we uh approach but I I think it's it's such such a classic I I really you know I think it it holds up as a film today would you guys say that Goldsmith has been as prolific as John Williams he just has the misfortune of having so many clunkers Mm. as films under his resume because mm. um, I, I would argue that he's some of his best stuff is incredible and he he just he was such a workaholic mm. um, but there were so many just average films that he did and th- I guess that's a sign of his great workmanship mm. um, throughout it. and I'm certainly not trying to put a downer on his his career I'm just saying kind of the opposite <laughs> yeah. he will take and work and put his heart and soul into any any film I, I think that's definitely right I mean I you know of course the the great uh, Ennio Morricone died um, relatively recently and I had the chance to write um, not just one but two pieces and we'll spend a lot of time talking about him on the radio um, and so I really went deep into his filmography and I would say that Morricone and Goldsmith are com- comparable in their workaholicism. <laughs> um, Morricone did more than 500 uh, film and TV uh, scores, which is a lot. Um, it's almost inconceivably a lot. But I would say that the, the point of similarity that I'm trying to draw out is that Morricone was in no sense a snob. He took on B-movies, he took on, you know, sex comedies, stuff that any sort of name composer, I think, would would generally totally turn their nose up at and go, oh, I, I, I am the great so-and-so, I can't possibly do this, this uh, <laughs> work of uh, trash. Um, but Morricone didn't really seem to care. I think he thought if it was an interesting project he didn't mind and I would say very much the same about Goldsmith and perhaps the the point of differentiation is that some of Morricone's films like the Dollars and the Sergio Leone's and a few others really became um you know works of cinephile culture classic um whereas perhaps fewer of Goldsmith's definitely there are some there like Chinatown um but, but yep, no, yeah. I would agree with that mm. definitely. Now, um, we, we don't always do this in this podcast, but I thought it might be an opportunity given that we're talking about Jerry Goldsmith and the massive back catalogue that he has, especially uh, before 1999, which really was towards the end of his mm. his career. Um, is is check out uh, another music podcast called the Goldsmith Odyssey. 
where they have uh, given themselves the challenge of going through his entire catalogue. So uh, cool podcast, unbelievably knowledgeable. So if you are a Goldsmith fan and you haven't checked out the Goldsmith Odyssey podcast, um, then go and check it out. And a big shout out to those guys over there. They do great work. Uh, And of course, I've got to advertise ourselves, Dan, though if you're Mm. here then, you know, what are we really advertising? <laughs> um, but, of course, if you haven't yet uh, subscribed or, or rated or commented on, um, on, on iTunes and things like that, then please go ahead and, and do that. Um, I don't want to tell you to give us a five-star review, but... You know. Um, <laughs> Are there other and, kinds? Yeah, yeah, yeah there's, there's only five stars, Dad. Yeah, Anything yeah. else, leave your comments to yourself. Um, <laughs> the, of course, um, please hit us up on, uh, on social media, um, at Art of the Score, on, on Twitter, on uh, Instagram, and, of course, Facebook. And, um, of course, our email address, which we get still piles of emails from some very, very lovely people, which we, we love hearing from. Love answering your questions. Love hearing from you. Uh, that is contact at artofthescore.com.au and uh, we are sure to read absolutely everyone. And um, like I said, love hearing from our listeners. So without any further ado here, Dan, we love to start <laughs> with you and we're going to do that mm. again. Uh, what can you tell us about, well, The Mummy and, um, and its place in, in cinematic history? Well, I think this is a really interesting film because at first appearance, uh, it certainly looked at the time when it was released uh, that it was uh, another formulaic blockbuster, sort of, you know, one part Indiana Jones and another part, well, this time it's set in Egypt. But it is very interesting because, of course, it's a revival, as you mentioned in your introduction, of the Universal Monsters you know, almost shared cinematic universe. Of course, they tried to revive the shared universe um, with the recent Tom Cruise, uh, Russell Crowe, uh, Dark <laughs> Universe, I think they called it, uh, that yeah, mummy, right. uh, that version of the mummy, and it didn't really work out for them. But th- this is, you know, a lot of people point to the um, James Whale, universe, James Whale is the producer and director of a lot of these and um, Carl Lemley uh, Jr. was the head of um, Universal at the time and really spearheaded these early films. Back in the, uh, you know, the early years of Hollywood, all of the studios had a kind of identity. You know, there were some that did high, highbrow, um, glitzy productions and then Universal was very much the kind of schlocky um, <laughs> monster horror picture house. Um, and so this was really their kind of identity is Universal did uh, did monster movies. Uh, and and so they did, um, you know, Dracula, they did Frankenstein, and they did The Mummy after the success of, of those two films. And eventually it, it did lead to a kind of shared universe. It was nowhere near as um, in detail as the Avengers these days, but there were crossover films. There was, I think, uh, Frankenstein meets the Wolfman and stuff like that. And then, of course, <laughs> Abbott and Costello got dragged into things. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I, I uh, definitely can't take credit for this. I have a, a PhD student who um, 
is doing a, his entire thesis that I'm supervising um, on the history of shared universes, um, particularly in cinema. And he's pointed out to me many times that, that, in fact, there were many shared universes predating the the Universal um, Pictures one. Um, many, 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 many. But the Universal one is, is often the one that people point to when they talk about the Avengers as not quite being this new thing. So the fact that this film in 1999 was a revival of, of this is... I think kind of fascinating. And then the process that it went through to become the film that it is. Originally, it was going to be a straight horror film. Um, and in fact, there was talk about bringing Joe Dante, Dante on as the director. He's the Gremlins guy, right? Um, <laughs> and <laughs> apparently, he wanted to have Daniel Day-Lewis as a, a, a kind of brooding mummy, which would have been a, a very different <laughs> film. And then then there was a version with George Romero. And eventually then, um, you know, I, th- I think a few different versions. Uh, this guy, Stephen Summers, basically pitched them. Well, why not expand it into a kind of adventure flick? A kind of old-fashioned, fun, serial-style story. Uh, and that that kind of version apparently stuck with the universal executives and it eventually became uh, this, this film and then had many, many spin-offs, the, the mummy two, the mummy three, which, you know, increasingly as we get this direction, the less said, the better, Um, (laughs) but also the scorpion King. And I have a pop quiz for both of you. Yes. Which is, what is the most recent mummy film to have hit the theater, the, the movie theaters? The most recent mummy film. Okay, mm. well, I'm going to assume it's not the Tom Cruise one um, because otherwise that would be too easy. It would um, be too easy. The, the most recent mummy film to hit the cinemas. Um, no, I'm drawing a blank. Look, I should say that phrasing is slightly misleading. To hit the cinemas. Was it shown in a cinema? Probably not. But it was certainly <laughs> produced more recently than the Tom Cruise one. Nick, you got any ideas? Oh, I'm trying to think of some like something that's been on like Netflix or has, <laughs> has gone a different oh, route than the cinema. Net- Netflix uh, is I, look, I can't, I can't, far sorry. too prestigious. Uh, <laughs> so, the Scorpion King... Step. The Scorpion King Book of Souls, that is The Scorpion King 5, oh. was released in 2018. Oh, my God. Please tell me The Rock was still involved. <laughs> oh, was no, I think the rock? The, rock, uh, the rock opted out after I think about the second one. Uh, maybe, maybe <laughs> After he went completely CGI. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Actually, no, the, the Rock went out after the first one. He's only in the first Scorpion King film uh, and, of course, yep. The Mummy Returns. But, yeah, there's Scorpion King 2, Rise of a Warrior, Scorpion King 3, Battle for Redemption, Scorpion King 4, Quest for Power, and then in 2018, Scorpion King, Book of Souls. And they, they are pretty much all direct to DVD or direct to, you know, VHS or whatever. But uh, look, uh, you know, obviously it's very much a, a, a tangent before we've even got into the, the main deal. But I just wanted to show that this film has roots in both directions. It, it might just be easy, especially if you, you spot the mummy up on Netflix these days to go, oh, remember that? That sort of 90s action movie. But actually, you know, really it dates all the way back to the 1932. There's a lot of shared character names. The plot is in the most broadest sense quite similar. Um, And then, you know, uh, direct-to-video sequels, spin-offs all the way up until two years ago. 
I mean, I, I'm thinking back to I was in university when this when this premiered. Um, you know, up until that point, you know, I loved Indiana, Indiana Jones, mm. but there hadn't been an Indiana Jones, well, since whenever it was, um, since the third one. And, you know, there was quite a long time. Uh, mm. And, you know, between those, those sort of genres. Mm. And this came on and I don't ever recall it being even vaguely a horror, even though watching it again recently, mm. it was obviously not that scary, but... but I did notice a little bit more the, the horror elements in it. But all I remember at the time is like, you know what? If this is the new Indiana Jones, yeah. call it what you want, I'm down. Like, yeah. the, you know, the, the vibe was right. Um, you know, the, the sort of cocky but also doofusy uh, <laughs> hero. And, uh, yeah, yeah it's, uh, I remember really loving it. I mean, it's a, it's a popcorn film. Uh, but, of course, yeah. the score is the, you know, really helps sell it. It's, it's grand. Um, it's, it's, a, it's huge in its scope. Uh, and it really helps sell um, uh, the special effects that are sort of all of the CGI is in its infancy, mm. um, even though I think at the time it was quite cool. Um, and it makes it feel like a much bigger film than it sort of really is. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in terms of special effects, I mean, it's released the same year as The Phantom Menace and The Matrix, um, to put it in perspective. Um, they've probably both aged uh, a lot better visually than this, but that's also just because that wasn't quite what this film was about. I think as well, but before we just jump into the score is the last thing. I mean, the, 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 the last thing that I say is that I feel like so much of the film is also made with the, the incredible chemistry that the cast has um, with, you know, Brendan Fraser and Rachel Weisz right at the start of um, their sort of careers. Um, Rachel Vice, of course, has gone on to have a very, very long successful career, but John Hanna as well as a, as a bit support cast member. He's just fantastic in, in this film. So yeah, it's, it's good. And also I love that Rachel Vice is the, the kind of Egyptologist because of course there were um, a number of high profile women in the 1920s at the time that the film is set that were high profile Egyptologists, including Agatha Christie. The, oh right, the novelist. Sure. She was married to an archaeologist, um, and they they kind of went to Egypt together. She even seemed to have disappeared. I don't know if that was quite related to her interest in Egypt, but she did legitimately disappear, for, like um, for a short period, and had memory loss. So you know, there, there was a lot of. Uh, I might be misrepresenting how linked that was. Yeah, but the, you know, there was a lot of stuff during the time that this film is set. Um, a popular fascination, you know, of course, the opening of the Tutankhamun's um, tomb, which inspired the original 1932 film. And, you know, this general sort of fascination with Egypt, ancient Egypt in particular. Mm. Now, um, we've, we've, we've spoken a bit about the film, but of course, we're a music podcast, Dan. Yes. Sorry. <laughs> we're talking about music. Yeah. Um, so, Nick, passing over to you. Many great themes um, within this, this uh, big score, but uh, where are we going to kick off? On, on this one. Well, look, Dan, you're talking about Egypt being a popular thing. You know, Stargate was about five years before this, which really, mm. again, had a massive Egyptian-based theme to it. And I remember distinctly seeing trailers for The Mummy where it was plastered with music from Stargate. Oh, really? Um, <laughs> yeah, we, and I actually wonder how much... I hear Stargate-isms in a lot mm. of this score. I wonder how much of that kind of was in the temp track going forward. But regardless, look, let's... Let's go to Jerry Goldsmith's music. Jerry has this way... Jerry, it's like we're friends. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Goldsmith has this way of writing which has so much clarity. I wouldn't say his music's overly complicated. And no greater example is probably the opening of this film where he just goes straight up Hollywood mode with like eight French horns blasting out this really 
quite simple melody and I want you really pay attention to the shape of the line because it's we're going to talk about Egyptian scales later on and, and whatnot but it really is outlining the idiosyncrasies of of what we kind of I guess assume is Hollywood Egyptian music right from the get-go in um, in this main theme let's have a listen So straight up, what I feel is a really sense of heaviness. It's almost like a really slow groove. It's kind of cool in its heaviness. I know that's kind of weird, but um, it give it it gives the opening such reverence. And I really think that this theme is. I'm going to call it the Humanupja theme because rather than just the the mummy theme can be a bit kind of vague and actually we'll discover that Imhotep himself has his own motive. Um, but it really forms the melody of the world or, or Humanupja itself. Mm. And of course, um, the, the melody isn't just in a standard um, time signature. It's not sort of four beats in the bar or even three beats in the bar. It's sort of a combination of both. Yeah, well, it's actually, I mean, in this opening performance, it's all in 7-8. Seven, eight. Seven, so eight, it's yeah, one, yeah. two, one, two, three, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, boom. You know, and just the harmony is, it's basically like three chords just repetitized over, repetitized, <laughs> repeated over and over. <laughs> repetitized, I love it. <laughs> tritone modulation it it <laughs> i mean in terms of its the the movement um in it it feels like it it marches forward and then it has a limp or it, it, it pauses just for a moment. It's like, march, march, pause, march, march, pause. Mm. Like it, it, it sort of feels like it's this sort of pushing and pulling uh, yeah. motion with it. So, and even harmonically, it always goes back to that root chord. Yeah, it's Darth Vader. Hmm. It, it kind of is a bit. It's like a sort of, it's the Egyptian Darth Vader. <laughs> <laughs> wow there you go <laughs> i think we've done that quite a few times recently hearing the imperial march and everything we should uh look dan should... if every composer in the world if they stopped <laughs> writing darth vader themes mm. in everything i will stop talking about it but until that time okay. we will always I, I point like out it... how much vader there is in the world at this point, we could really have an art of the score drinking game, I think, you know, like time <laughs> to, to mentioning John Williams uh, in a non-John Williams related <laughs> episode uh, or, you know, when we throw in the likeness of the Imperial March or when Nick God. does an amazing uh, pun-based musical joke. Anyway, <laughs> back to the score here. Um, 
I I mean those 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 sort of French horns. I mean all playing in I guess unison. It sort of feels like battle horns. Um, they're played really really loud, so they're not sort of nice. And it's not like a happy. Here's the mummy. It's got a sort of sense of of seriousness about it. And look, before we explore this Humanupja theme, I want to play the next two themes because they come right in quick succession. And it's really interesting how they're established right at the opening of the score. So what we get straight away after this is a presentation of Imhotep's theme. And it's more like a little motif. And it's this figure... Just a little simple figure based on the tritone, that interval there. And this is yeah, quite an angular little motif and plays quite a lot in the later part of the film whenever Imhotep is sort of gaining strength and forming his, his, his mumminess as he slowly regains power. And then we're straight into the love theme. And this is, I guess, a, just a general theme for love. It covers the romance between Anaxunamun, the king's mistress, is she? Yeah. I guess. And um, you know, having she's having an affair with Imhotep, and then later on becomes a romance theme for Rick and Evie. So let's have a listen to this next little bit of the cue that that plays these two melodies back to back. And we'll come back to them later. But look, just on this Humanupture theme, the shape of the melody. Even just that little phrase, we get bits of this sort of scale. And all of a sudden you can tell you can tell it has quite a sort of exotic feel to it, just the shape of it. Just after this scene where the, the King Seti is is killed and then Imhotep gets captured, we get this really kind of developed theme um, based on the Hamanaptra theme in really high cellos and it's hugely strained and um, again just a real kind of simple presentation but fully fully impassioned and, and the tremolo strings underneath it are really really kind of help sell the drama.
Yeah, it's such a great colour, isn't it, with the um, those uh, celli sort of being up so high like that. I mean, I've, I've always felt that in the string um, family of instruments that the cellos are, are most in the, the, the human vocal range. And by having... Um, you know the the cellos up in that high end. You can sort of really hear a, I guess a, a woman wailing or sort of you know, um, singing a, uh, a song of sort of danger or something's about to happen. You know at this point and they're because they're all playing as this massive unit. Once again, there's this big sense of danger. And then you have all of those higher strings, but they're all underneath, um, or at least they're, they're all the you know the the bed underneath. Yeah, and they're actually voiced lower. So the cellos, who are a lower instrument, are playing above the violins and the violas. Uh, it sort of inverts the the orchestra a bit. Yeah, absolutely. I always think that that kind of, you know, getting instruments to play outside their range, especially when there's a similar instrument in the same family that has that natural range. So getting the cellos to play in, I, I guess, maybe what would this be the viola or even the violin um, in terms yeah, it's of, a high high viola range. Yeah, I mean, it's almost like uh, you know the the infamous opening to the Rite of Spring with the bassoon playing what really should be like a I don't know an oboe. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, it just sounds strained. It sounds un- unnatural yeah. and un- uh, uncomfortable. It's definitely tense. Definitely tense. Then look, we fast forward three thousand years and we get the first major action scene in the film. And all of a sudden, this mummy theme has been completely kind of re, reorchestrated, reimagined, I guess, as a fast action cue. And have a listen to the meter changes. And by meter, I'm talking about the time signature because it alternates between 4 4 and 7 8. So it's this sort of 1 2 3 4, 1 2, 1 2 3, 1 2. And it kind of just ever so slightly makes it a little bit less regular. So it's still direct. It still has that real kind of in-your-face brass approach to it, but all of a sudden it's in trumpets and it takes on a more sort of slightly heroic, um, but it's a, a more contemporary, I guess, for want of a better word, kind of setting of it. And, and we've seen this a lot in in other scores we've we've uh, spoken about before, especially in action sequences or or dramatic sequences where the use of odd time signatures, so strange numbers of beats in the bar. Um, are ultimately used in lots of action sequences because you can line up, you know, various hits and punches. You can have the accents, um, you know, those loud sort of hits in the brass um, come through at unexpected times, which helps to create the drama. And um, that's a lot harder to do if you have it in a more consistent time signature. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, you know, we're sort of unraveling some of the, the classic techniques of, of film scoring already um, so early in the film. And, and of Goldsmith in particular. I mean, he, you know, some of his most famous scores, like Planet of the Apes, for example, which is, is one that we've talked about doing. It's just such a complex score because of these constant time signature changes and, uh, you know, the percussion, um, which, which we'll talk about here as well. But, I mean, Goldsmith, you know, to me, those things, percussion and some extremely um, bold French horn, uh, that, that's, that's Goldsmith <laughs> to me. <laughs> mm. Yeah, totally. 
Um, we actually get, and I've never noticed this until I was sort of playing it under the fingers today, almost like a major key variation of this melody. So right where it would normally go, if you just go straight down, um, he takes that little idea and almost makes it into a new kind of melody when they're all traveling via camel to uh, to Hamanaptra. And it's this sort of great kind of, uh, I guess, montage sequence of, you know, glorious Egyptian sunsets and, and in the distance they're kind of traveling across the plains. But again, it's a classic example of where you just hear the, the clarity of the orchestration. It's like there's a percussion rhythm. I think it's a tambourine here. Um, some underlying pizzicato string for a bit of movement and then again just a massive bold French horn statement. I mean, this, this is essentially the the travel show music for for Harmonaptra that that you know this is what they want you to think it's like yeah, um, this is the brochure, yeah, the brochure. <laughs> come to Harmonaptra yeah. all your dreams will be fulfilled in canopic jars we we have that that you know that wonderful chorus that choir mm. um, coming in Over and, the top, and yeah. you know following once again in unison it's it's very singular mm. these sort of ideas and and really we get the um, there's no harmony change. It's all the same yeah. E flat chord the whole way. I mean, the the main difference is in in all the frills around it. You've got the the plucked, um, you know, sort of string instrument uh, that you know is sort of doing little uh, you know flourishes um, and and finishing off certain things. Yeah, it mm, sort of does like little that, yeah. little you know flourishes at the end and and then uh, yeah, it's it's sort of percussion and and um, strings sort of playing a bed of it you know on a single note and yeah, it's quite simple, isn't it? But mm. it really mm. you know it feels like it's got movement and that's really sort of the the going a lot of this is that once again Goldsmith, as you were saying, um, Dan, that that use of percussion you know is really mm. sort of driving everything forward here um, when when you're not having lots of uh, harmony changes and chord changes and 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 complex driving rhythms of of the melody you've got this sort of bed of percussion that's sort of making you feeling like you're traveling hmm. yeah I also feel that that um, there's something almost a little bit wandering about the this main theme in that. It it almost feels to me like you've got the da 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 da, but then it's just that da 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 da, and you could basically wander up and down the scale in any sort. Well, of, especially in that sequence. Yeah. I mean, that's all the melody does. All right, we've done that bit, and then we go. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You know, and that that's it. It sounds like Jerry wandering around the piano. I mean, maybe that's like them wandering through the vast desert. I mean, I suppose if we we take this to be, you know, at least in part the the theme for the the villains. I mean, they they are still in search after thousands of years of of each other and their love and resolving, you know, this this kind of historical 
injustice that's been done onto them from their perspective anyway. And so, yeah, that, 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 yeah, it's, it's their love story lost through the sands of yeah. time. Sort of thing. <laughs> yeah. Was oh, that the opening of Days of Our Lives? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is that Days of Our Lives or is that Bold and the Beautiful? I couldn't say. That's another episode. Yeah. <laughs> we- <laughs> What's this one? Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> of course you would know it, Nick. Yeah, uh, I'm a, a voting member of the Daytime Emmys, didn't I tell you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, look, um, you mentioned percussion, Andrew. Yes. Um, I actually sent part of this score to a friend of mine who's a sort of ethnic specialist and said, look, what is this drum? I, I think it's, it's not a bongo, but it sounds similar. I think it might be a maybe a data book or something like that. And he said that, yeah, look, a lot of this score does feature the, the data booker, which um, he says a, a modern one with a, um, a probably a metal body, which maybe isn't purely traditional um, but especially in this next cue you really hear some of this rhythmic vitality in the rhythm below the orchestra really coming from this this ethnic drum um, and have a listen to the rhythm here because Goldsmith uh, I kept hearing this cue going it sounds like something else um, there's a cue in Basic Instinct <laughs> where Michael Douglas is driving frantically and dodging cars where he has the same rhythm which is 4-4 four, four, matched with 7-8 and here in The Mummy they're kind of plowing through these corrupted slaves uh, but you'll, you'll hear them play back to back it's quite quite interesting Flowering through the slaves. And here's Michael Douglas plowing through San Francisco. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, one. It's the... Jerry Goldsmith rhythm of reckless driving. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> four four to seven eight equals reckless driving scene. Yeah. To Mr. Yeah. Goldsmith, I like it. Great. There you go. We figured it out. <laughs> yeah. Figured it out. <laughs> um, let's move on to our our main villain, Imhotep. Um, I played his little motif before. Um, when we actually get the title shot in the film, where um, Imhotep gets sort of covered in those scarab beetles and actually gets mummified and it pans up to this great shot of the statue of Anubis and it reveals the mummy. Um, we really hear this this kind of tritone melody or motif of his. I really enjoy the use of choir in this score. Um, I mean, it, it's it's one of those sort of great devices in a score where it does feel like it could be coming from within the scene. You know, this sounds like it, it could be the priests 
yeah, or like moaning zombies. It's that kind yeah, of yeah, moaning, yeah. moaning mummies. Yeah. Um, so it's it's sort of a combination of yes, um, uh, wailing, um, but then you know also a, a I'm also seen in my mind's eye like a, a a jury almost of judging um you know yeah uh I, angels i don't know like the priests ultimately who are sort of you know giving judgment over the scene and and so on it's, it's yeah and they're hold, yeah holding him to account for his infidelity yeah yeah so yeah it's a it's once again it's little simple uh, things like this, and and they're not at least I don't believe they're saying any words. I really could be wrong. Um, it certainly doesn't sound like it. Um, so so voices used as a as a color, and um, yeah, it's a uh, and it's es- especially at the end of that cue, you really get the first sense that it has a horror element to it, with that kind of you know there's the angular imitep's motif, but then it just sort of dissolves into sort of this cluster of dissonance, mm. as as we see the mummy, you know, and you know you're you're set up for for some scares. Mm. <laughs> I mean, I know a lot of these melodies sort of feel snake-like, um, but there's something about this one, even though it's probably one of the more angular ones, which doesn't often make something feel slithery. This one feels, yeah, slithery, but then there's like a little raise of the eyebrow at the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, yaha, yeah. You know, it's yeah. like... It's <laughs> you, you know what? Because I was thinking that as well, that that's the key point of differentiation between that and the main theme. Because with the main theme, it's almost like, I, I imagine as a horn player, where do you breathe? Da, 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 you could just keep playing that melody and forget to breathe in the middle. Whereas this one, da, 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 da. <laughs> you know, there's a clear little spot where at least the melody breaks um, and, and there's a rest. <laughs> uh, but it kind of, you know, means that it, it sticks out in your ear in the in the in the theater, I think, um, yeah. as being distinctly oh, totally. different. Yeah. And look, here's a much more powerful version on low brass where Imhotep is sort of raised, and we finally see him. You know, when he's sort of like, he's like a, he's not a skeleton. He's kind of got like, he's got a little bit of sinew on him. Sinew on it, yeah. He's sort of slightly formed. Um, check it out. I'm pretty sure I know where this is from. This is in the shower scene at the start. Um, and uh, then, you know, he has a knife in the shower scene. And then it goes into um, then it goes into his melody. And then it finishes with uh, Terminator. The Terminator shows up. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I love those. Another case solved <laughs> yeah. by out of the score. Everyone's seen this film, haven't they? That's how it works. I totally love those guttural... Uh, descending trombones. Uh, to me, that's another goldsmithism. Those kind of totally, uh, yeah. I, I, there's a few films where he uses that mm. it's sliding low brass. Yeah, absolutely. And that's something I think probably Giacchino has has picked up on as as something that mm-hmm. he does. Um, probably, I mean, inspired by by Goldsmith. But yeah, that's it's just such a wonderfully um, dire brass effect. Yeah. When I saw this film, I was a um, youth group leader for a while and I remember hiking with a bunch of kids and we were all obsessed with the mummy that had just come out 
and there was this kid whose name's Tim. And in Ukrainian, because I'm Ukrainian, that translates to Timote. <laughs> and someone someone misread it as Imotep. <laughs> so his his nickname became Imotep, this little 15-year-old kid. And so what I'd get all the kids to do, we'd get up in the morning at like 5 a.m. and I'd make a march and they'd be going, Imotep. Just because just I'm sadistic. Yeah. So but this next cue I want to play. I was just about to say I that, just, that Nick, Nick um, you know, has a history of bullying yeah. um, within, yeah. um, within the score music realm. Um, so, yeah. you know, mm. this is why we, we've got nothing but the best on our score, Dan. Um, yeah. uh, Let me bring this back full circle, please. <laughs> okay. okay. So, I just, this next bit I want to play, always I have such fond memories of it of this little kid um and it's basically where it's almost like the score becomes diegetic in that it becomes part of the actual film canvas and you've got all those slaves walking along going imotep thud imotep thud and then as it kind of reveals imotep in the middle of them walking and kind of leading his troops we, we again hear his motive play out loud but I mean, maybe the three of us could could try it. Yeah. <laughs> what do you think? Yep, I'm. Um, Relive my childhood for me. I'm uh, pretty confident that nothing is uh, more in unison than when you try something over Zoom. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> let's let's see how it goes. Yeah. Here we go. Imotep, imotep, imotep. Imhotep. It sounds terrible. I'm sure it'll sound great in post. Imhotep. Very simple cue, but I just I always remember that mm. bit from the film with the Imhotep. I, I am confident that had we done that pre-COVID, um, that would have worked very well in the room. Oh, so yeah, I applaud sure. you for, yeah. um, for, for <laughs> keeping your artistic integrity mm, mm-hmm. with the gags <laughs> mm-hmm. and not worrying about the technology uh, limitations mm. that we're working with at the moment. <laughs> All right, let's get into the love theme because is, it is beautiful yeah. and quite an important part of the story. I'll play an example of it and then I'll, I'll discuss a couple of things. So this is when we finally see Rick cleanly shaven and all well manicured with a nice dashing haircut and they he meets Evie and her brother at the Giza port. just adore this sense of um, movement and no movement all at the same time. Mm. It's, I, I love the juxtaposition um, because <laughs> it's, I mean, that melody without the percussion would be, you know, one of the most sort of slow moving, mm. um, you know, smooth melodies going around. Um, but with that little bit of percussion underneath it, it suddenly has a little bit of, you know, it's got a little bit of pep, but 
the vibe of it still just feels so beautifully mm. easy, I guess. Um, and it's nice, isn't it? Yeah, and it kind of makes it sort of, yeah, seductive and romantic, but sort of flirty at the same time, <laughs> which is kind of what's going on. You know, she sees him. She's like, you know, this disgusting man. Oh, oh, hello. Mm. You know, and she obviously changes. And you can really feel that in, in the music. There. Mm. I, I really love this theme. I have many things to say about it. Firstly, that the theme is made by the second chord in the, that it's just it just so far it's okay sure. but it's this one yeah ah oh, ah oh. so yeah. much sophistication and kind yeah. of it's kind of jazzy yeah, it is. cuz it's a yeah. it's a minor 7th which i don't know if that was hugely popular in the early 20s yet <laughs> mm. and interestingly i mean dan it actually the combination of those two chords outlines the scale. Okay, if I just play normal F major, right, that's fine. But if I kind of combine it with the E flat minor, you get all these E flats and G flats. So you, the scale becomes. Hmm. And again, built into the, that those two harmonies is the sort of the DNA of that exotic Egyptian sort of sound. And the sec- I'm ticking them off as I go in my head. The second of three things that I want to say <laughs> is that it, for some reason it inexplicably reminds me of James Horner's Mask of Zorro score. I don't know why. I think possibly there's something in the harmony there. Maybe we can come back to oh, that. Oh, probably, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure if that's exactly the right chord, yeah, but it yeah, yeah. definitely, it really, it kind of lingers on only yeah. a couple of chords. And that is a that is a fantastic score. But I, I think that the, the third thing, and really the key thing that I want to say about this is, to me, this love theme is right in that sweet spot, right in the pocket for indescribably must-be-film music. And therefore also reminds me so much like you put this on and I'm instantly nostalgic for being in a movie theater and seeing a film for the first time because it's it's simple enough that it's not classical music. It's not orchestral music meant for a concert hall to be played by itself. It's a little bit too simple for that. But at the same time, it's got a little bit too much sophistication to be like a pop tune that just happens to use an orchestra or perhaps some more recent film music that that is not so much melodically and harmonically developed so to me like you hear this and i'm instantly like yeah that's that's film music and it's film music by someone who knows what they're doing that's the good stuff. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I agree. I mean, it, it, this, this feels the most Hollywood. Yeah. And I guess that's ultimately what you're saying. Yeah. It feels the most grand Hollywood in, in the best possible tradition. It feels like it's harking back to those golden years of Hollywood. It's sort of set in that, mm. that early time as well. And weirdly makes you feel nostalgic for a period that we weren't alive yeah. for. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, it's sort of beautiful. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Uh, let's hear a little less ethnic performance of it on solo flute, as uh, Andrew always teaches us listeners, flute for girl, clarinet for boy. I always say things, Nick, and that is one of them. (laughs) 
It's fascinating how that is just a pure romance cue, and it could be in any film except for the fact that there's that bazooki mm. in, in, in the side answering, ding, ding, ding. It just, it's that one little touch that just places it in this particular film. Now, a question for you. Is it, is it I mean, look, I, I don't know a lot um, about, you know, sort of different, let's call it a guitar. I know it's not a guitar, but you know what I mean? Mm. That's type of instrument. Um, is it a bazooki or is it like an Egyptian sort of oud or is, is it definitely a bazooki? I read that it is a bazooki, mm. yeah. And, I mean, look, people always think a bazooki is Greek. I think originally it was actually kind of Turkish. Mm-hmm. Like we often discuss with ethnic instruments, they have their bases in so many mm. different parts of Europe throughout time. Um, I mean, really, it's, it's, a, it's an extension of the lute. It's part of the lute family, mm. which is sort of, I guess, widely more part of the guitar family. Um, and there are different types of bazookis as well. I actually have a, um, another Turkish string instrument right next to me, which I can't reach over and grab because my N64 controller will fall off the wall. Um, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, this, this is Dan. I know. This is, this is Dan in a nutshell. Yeah. Let me grab my um, not bazooki <laughs> next to my N64 yeah, controller. Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> but it's a, it's a six-stringed, oh, wow. but du- in double strings, so three strings with, with two times three, a baglama saz. Um, which is a Turkish instrument, which is which is um, very similar in sound. So I wouldn't be surprised if if yeah it was yeah aiming at that you know kind of interesting variant wow. too. Mm. <laughs> I want to play a bit of the Caravan, where again a solo flute performance that then segues into really just uh, a bit of a groove with with the bazooki and percussion just sort of noodling along. I mean, back to those those choices of percussion, it, it's starting to strike me that we really have two modes, and I think they're very much on purpose. I mean, of course they are. Um, you've got the the bombastic percussion, the, you know, the big drums, um, timpani, things that you're not going to be carrying around under your arm as, as you're on the caravan. And then you've got the other type, which is the sort of more folk, everything's um, portable, you've got uh, tambourines. Um, hand percussion. Hand percussion, yeah, things that you can carry with you that, that um, you know, don't require a camel um, to drag around. And, uh, you know, you, by using either or, you have something with the big percussion that feels like it's constant, it's not moving, it is what it is. And then you have all of this hand percussion and it's often used whenever we're traveling, we're moving, we need to be portable. And so the the uses of that percussion is sort of, you know, even from a practicality mm. of, mm. of yeah. what is happening on screen is sort of makes sense, which, um, you know, smart choices, I think. Um, I remember seeing this at the cinemas and this next scene was like, I was just floored by the music because it was so, it was so stunning. It was such a musical moment. It's it's that camel race where they kind of all bolt full speed ahead towards Hamanatra, and the you know it's like sort of an action cue disguised as a romance cue because as soon as Evie and Rick take off uh, and start winning, it really plays a v- glorious romantic version of the love theme in really high strings. But have a listen to the horns. It's sort of. 
they just provide the complete motor underneath and it's a very, very goldsmith thing. Why does it manage to sound a little bit more major than the than some of the previous examples? Has anything changed in it? It's just I don't know. No, hmm. no. Yeah, I think it's just maybe it's it's voiced a bit higher and and, and it's orchestration really mm. that that keeps it a bit lighter and more and more fun. Yeah, I you know I think that kind of thing where uh, you know in in more contemporary film music you often the kind of rhythm the busyness will be provided obviously by percussion but also um, string ostinatos often um, whereas I, I think you know it's just such a beautiful effect and, and provides a kind of sense of 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 free flowing movement. And we've often talked in the past about um, woodwinds for flight sequences doing that same kind of, you know, Andrew, I think you described it in, um, what was it, the Azkaban podcast about the um, buckbeak flying and you can kind of yeah. feel the, the air floating The past. motor. Yeah. Um, uh, but through the woodwinds providing the, the rhythm. And I think, you know, it, yeah, brass and woodwinds are just really underutilized in, in, in a rhythmic sense. And, yeah. Great. <laughs> You're on notice, composers. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I, maybe, maybe, maybe on some deeper level, it's because we understand that that rhythm is now being provided by breath, rather than hitting things or plucking things. Um, it's it's somebody breathing really fast, or you know, obviously, kind of using their tongue. Ta, 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 ta. I, I think also when you're not doing things within a computer. It can be that little bit late, that little bit early. Mm. There's an organicness mm. that happens, whereas you know computers are very good at locking things into mm -hmm. perfectly on the beat, and um, you lose a lot of that that natural um, sort of human, mm. I guess, error that happens ever <laughs> so slightly all around. Mm. And you, you mentioned that melody sounding a bit major key. I mean, the very final shot in the film, we get a swelled romantic performance followed by quite a heroic one. And it really loses any shades of sadness completely by, by the end as they ride off into the sunset. That's a great little turn, isn't it? At the end there, uh, it definitely it definitely gives um, uh, no one any doubt that the film is is, <laughs> is over. <laughs> and that that rhythm, that jun 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 jun, all I can hear is um is is this. You're gonna laugh.
which of course is a Give us the hook from from hook. Yeah, from hook. <laughs> yeah, yeah. By, by, by John Williams is all the pirates march. Dun, 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 See, Dan, dun, if you dun. and I hadn't mentioned him earlier, um, yeah. we would have got there eventually. Yeah. I'm just saying that if you get in early, people have their drink. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. then, you know, we're we're done and we can we we know we've hit Williams early. Yeah. Um, absolutely. <laughs> Look, let's end our discussion of the love theme with a bit that's not really in the, the film as such, but is in the credits. And um, I'm always bemoaning these days that I feel like films don't have end credit music anymore. Oh, I know, or, or they're like pieced together from existing cues mm. or they've run out of time. Uh, and don't get me started on like online streaming where like you'll finish a yeah, film and then dumps you they'll out play of- two seconds and it says, oh, here's the next film that. to see. Anyway. Um, the performance of this love theme at the end is is one for the ages. It's really super glorious. We've got the choir, all the elements that that make a love theme so good are in there. And it really, you know, it, it feels like it could be part of that Elsie Ben-Hur golden age of Hollywood, Miklos Roja style love theme for the ages. I just love how lazy that choir is. <laughs> you know, they're really late, like really late. Um, but it just feels so right at the same time um, mm. that they're sort of behind. And yeah, it's so beautiful. It's it's so laid back. It's it's like they're wallowing it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You can imagine yeah. conducting that, Nick, where you're just like, I'm going to milk this for everything it's got. You Maybe know? they got off the click and just let's... Let's do it free and mm. just take our time. I think it totally. It. There's no way you can do that on click. That's mm. that level of laid backness <laughs> with everything slightly behind and you know getting more behind is that's not click. And no and way. it's more likely <laughs> than any other cue, you know, in the end credits to conduct without a click track, right? Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Although, look, with film scoring, often the choir is at a completely different session yeah, and often sure. on their own mm. and will overdub these things and they, they blend them together, um, which maybe is more reason why they're not with the orchestra because they're literally they're, they don't have a reference, yeah. not actually yeah. in the same yeah. room with them. I mean, them. I've, I've sung in, in yeah. orchestral um, choruses for for many years and um, choirs are as bad as string players. They're, they're always late, <laughs> uh, <but laughs> always super slow. And that's such a great example in, in, the, in the best possible way, such a great example of that sort of singing. Hmm. Um, our last theme I want to look at is Rick's theme, which is really like our sort of hero Indiana Jones theme. But it's kind of quirky and it's got a really odd harmonic progression to it. Again, using this tritone harmony leap, here's the melody that I'm talking about. It's that kind of thing. And to me, it's the quirkiness of the harmony kind of matches the character. Mm. 
in that he's sort of a bit of an accidental hero. You know, he's a bit of a maverick and maybe like Indiana Jones, sometimes has a bit of luck on his side. But have a listen to the very first time we hear it. It's not the actual melody. It's almost like the building blocks of the melody. So it's this rather than we get Goldsmith taking sort of like taking these little chromatic kind of steps upwards as if it's sort of, here we go, here we go, here we go. And just listen to the lower part of the harmony, how it just doesn't change and builds tension until oh, finally it releases and they all start firing their guns. Rave, it's cool, isn't it? It's really, it's really nuts. Uh, yeah, again, just really kind of clear, real in-your-face brass playing. It's sort of, it's aggressive. Um, yeah, I mean, how many horn players did they go through in this recording? <laughs> like that, you, you you can't sustain that. You know, this this would be a nightmare to play live. This score, I reckon, you'd need about twice the number of horn players, um, and 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 have subs uh, subbing out. You know, look, it's it's not something we talk about often. Classical orchestra has four horns. Most films have eight, and that's why the sound of Hollywood is you don't really get in the concert hall often, um, and it's because not many pieces in the classical repertoire require eight horns and just something about having eight horns all play the same line in that real smack of your face middle register is is something you don't hear when you go and hear Tchaikovsky or something well, Bernard, Bernard Herrmann still takes the record I think in his unused uh, torn curtain score that Hitchcock fired him from I think he had 17 or something why like not that. French yeah, okay. horns like psh. that's a baker's dozen yeah <laughs> Yeah, it's, uh, and like 12 wow. flutes or something and then sort of miscellaneous others. It was anyway. <laughs> when they are on the boat and the, they sort of have this sort of action scene where the, they get, I guess, hijacked by the marauders, um, have a listen to the melody because it gets deconstructed throughout the orchestra. So that first phrase is like in the low trombones and tubers and then... Is up in the sort of high piccolo and, and flutes. It's really kind of dissected before coming together in a normal presentation. I mean, this melody always feels like like he's just 
um, rolling out of the way, doesn't it? You know, like it's it's dodging. It's it's only just getting away with it. I mean, the mm. the the heroism yeah. is there, but it's it's like he's always being set upon. Yeah, it's by of, accident. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think this every single time I hear this theme, and you know, if you played me just this motif by itself and I'd somehow forgotten that it was from the mummy. I reckon, especially in that kind of a setting with a snare drum, every single time. Firstly, I would definitely know it was Jerry Goldsmith, but secondly, I would probably say it's Star Trek. To me... Oh, sure. Yeah, he, yeah, his yeah. his yep. Star Trek yep. action scenes um, for the movies, uh, just there's something about this and that lifted, what is it, the fourth? Um, yeah, I reckon that's the harmony as mm. well because the, the tritone chords... I mean that's 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 the sound of of space. Yeah. I mean it's in it's in Goldsmith Star Trek. It's in Horner's Wrath of Khan all over the place. Mm. You know, <laughs> it, it's a real a real um, space opera kind of kind of yeah. thing. Yeah. Uh, so th- that that look that could be part of the reason that it's triggering you, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, look, I, I you know, I mean, I, I love I love all of that, and, and I think it's it's just unmistakably Goldsmith. And a certain kind of action, you know, like Star Trek films have have never been particularly noted for their amazing action sequences, except for probably, you know, Wrath of Khan or, or possibly some of the more recent Abrams ones. But generally, the, the ones that Goldsmith got to write music for had mostly, shall we say, and this is while well, being a, you know, heart-on-heart fan of Star Trek, some pretty dorky action. Um, <laughs> you know, Picard running around with a huge blaster rifle is, is not... Not quite, you know, John McClane. So and this assessment is coming from the guy with a uh, bazooki next to his yeah, N64 exactly. controller. So, you know, <laughs> this, is, this is a very I'm well dorky. placed to, to, to make such an assessment and welcome them into my level. Uh, but, I, yeah, I, you know, I think there's just something about it where the, the music is doing a little bit of the work, kind of, you know, propelling and, and making it perhaps a little bit more exciting uh, and, and, and possibly hectic feeling than it actually is on screen. Um, well, look, I mean, the next cue is exactly that where Andrew's saying he's sort of rolling out of the way. I mean, have a listen. The, the distinction between like, here the baddies coming along and then now the hero's kind of fighting back is so clear. It's like he's got ethnic action music for like the random thugs and baddies and then he's got like our hero theme and it just it just splits both instrumentally and orchestration wise and in their their kind of vibes and just kind of weaves in and out of them you hear the baddies hero Baddies. Hero. Back to baddies. <laughs> it's just so obvious, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think yeah. this this helps to sell the the schlockiness of it. Mm. The it's totally that. You know, um, it really emphasizes that this is sort of a don't take this too seriously, yeah. folks. You know, keep eating your popcorn. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I reckon this this little next bit sounds a bit like 
maybe some of the Star Trek action music you're thinking of, mm. Dan, where again it's this sort of pedal tone for for tension, and then that kind of mm. kind of harmony. And then over Nick, the, top. the pedal tone is uh, pedal tone where the the bass doesn't change. And it just basically creates an anchoring and a sense of tension. And you, I mean, you hear that kind of sound in some of the Star Wars stuff where. The, I guess the extended sides of the orchestra, both the low and high, keeping attention. You know, you hear it in um, Gustav Holst, you know, Mars, the bringer of war, and then the chords in the middle kind of flaring out here and there to create that, that sort of um, the tension between the, the harmonic clashes. Yeah, I think, yeah, especially, especially that, that, that version you've just played with the, with the pedal tones and those, those kind of slightly thicker French horn chords I reckon yeah if you if you put that over any of the Klingon battle exactly, or something <laughs> yeah like here come the Borg like engage um, <laughs> make it so like that yeah absolutely I'd yeah. buy it without a second thought and even like yeah, uh, Air Force One you know get off my yeah. plane yeah <laughs> it's another Goldsmith score uh, look the last bit I want to play of Rick's theme is like the ultimate kind of hero moment and it's actually a cue that is used twice in an identical version both for the scene where they're doing the plane ride through the desert and then when Rick kind of saves Evie and has that great CGI shot where he's probably just swinging a sword in midair and then all the mummies that he's killing you can tell have sort of been like artificially put in later <laughs> but again compare the opening of this where it's sort of got that 7-8 feel to later on in the queue where it almost becomes like this halftime lazy bit that just kind of sits so it's like a, it's like a jazz move it just sort of starts strutting halfway through it's quite funny That is outrageous. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's cool. It's a cool, cool kind of metric shift. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, it's got attitude, that shift. It really yeah. does. Yeah. yeah. Supreme confidence. Yeah. And also I was thinking, what a what a nightmare request of those poor brass players in the, the first section with all that. I can't even... Imagine <laughs> how you tongue that fast with a yeah yeah and and just yeah. keep doing it for three minutes yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> what what would it be tucker to tucker to tucker to tucker Andrew you're the wind I mean there'd be sixteenths in seven eight so there'd be fourteen fourteen chunks per bar 
Yeah, it's no thank you. I mean, I suspect most people. I mean, you can sort of hear the the fuzziness of it. Mm. I mean, people are. I mean, they're generally nailing it, but it's mm. you know, there's there's people only just hanging on as well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, at the same time. <laughs> and I mean, I can't blame them. There's no way. I as a sometime long given up trombonist, uh, no thanks. That that. It's not but my it, idea of fun. It really makes it sound like it's the propeller. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it adds it adds to the chaos of, mm. of what's going yeah. on. You know, mm. it's yeah. it's not perfect. Mm. Um, look, we're we're going to move uh, on from the the main themes, and I thought I would take a classic uh, right hand turn <laughs> at this point in the podcast and uh, talk about one of my favourite topics: the source music that pops up in a very minor way all throughout this uh, this movie. If nothing else, actually, just to sort of look at some of the choices that the, the filmmakers have, have made in the music that they put within the world. So the first thing we're going to play is a piano piece that appears on the boat. And it's in the style of, of, of a rag, I guess the rag time. And, uh, and here it is. So unfortunately, our characters aren't hearing the beautiful sweeping strings. Uh, maybe in their hearts, they're hearing that. But th- this is the sort of music that is around at the time. And and as always, I love to to sort of try and s- search out inaccuracies um, with the film. <laughs> unfortunately, there isn't one here. Um, I mean, this this. Uh, well, I mean, would they be like they're in Egypt? Yeah. Like. Who's playing ragtime on a boat in Egypt? Well, this, like this sort like of makes American sense. I mean, look, it's, it's 1926, I believe. Did is, they bring their own pianist? Is, is, yeah, I mean, maybe. But it's 1926 when it's set. I mean, ragtime really had its, its time from sort of 1900 to 1919-ish was sort of mm. the peak period. So you could sort of argue that maybe this piece was 20 to, you know, 20-odd 20, 20 years old. Mm. Now, this is the equivalent of you and I, Nick, going on a cruise and us listening to some music um, from the late 90s, from the early 2000s. This sort of makes sense, right? Like the, yeah. <laughs> the concept that, that you'd, you'd listen to some of the old classics, um, <laughs> you know, at least from, you know, when, when you're a little bit younger, yeah. uh, sort of makes sense. And it, and it makes sense from the idea of um, it's, it's very um, uh, American. Yeah, I, I, I think um, that's probably the only thing that doesn't quite make sense to me is that it is American. I mean, I, I was thinking as well, like, Rick, his character, right? He's there because he's in the French Foreign Legion, right? At the start of the film, he says that. <laughs> now, I, you know, just to reiterate, Egypt was... Um, it had finished being part of the Ottoman Empire by 1926, but it was n- nominally an independent country, but really under the rule, I suppose, of the English. So what the French Foreign Legion is doing there is, well, you know, <laughs> curious. But secondly, uh, he says, he does say that they'd come there through Libya, he says, which which was Italian at that point in time. So the fact that neither the Italians nor the English are particularly upset by some of the French armed forces going through their, uh, well, at that point, 
outposts of empire. But also Li- Libya, he does say Libya. Libya didn't have that name at that point. Uh, anyway, so, you know, look, the fact that <laughs> American music has <laughs> turned up. Back to the ragtime here. Yeah, man. yeah, yeah. It, it, like, it's, it's as believable as uh, his story of how, as an American himself, he's ended up there. So the music has perhaps taken the same circuitous route. <laughs> <laughs> now, I, I didn't find a, a whole heap wrong with that, but there are scenes, well, when they're, when they're on the uh, camels, but also when they're at, at, at Fort Bryden and uh, we get what I guess you would call overtly um, Egyptian sort of uh, folk music. And uh, here's one of those pieces. And I believe this particular piece is called Al Nala Al Ali, um, and it's actually a tracked piece. So this is this is by an, a band that you know wasn't written for for this movie. Um, it's by a band, uh, the Musicians of the Nile, and they're a band that uh, an Egyptian group that were sort of around in the eighties and nineties. And it turns out, and this is where this is where this movie is a fraud, <laughs> Dan. Um, it turns out that this particular piece is not an actual piece of Egyptian folk music. It's actually a, an original piece written by the musicians of the Nile in the 80s. So how it turns up mm. within the world <laughs> of this film, I mean, this is, this is the digital watch. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Great yeah. Scott. <laughs> so we've caught them at it. Um, yeah. Yeah. They've done the wrong thing. Um, <laughs> But but all of that aside, the they there's a couple of tracks um, that are from the the musicians of the Nile. Um, the translations are the tall palm tree and uh, love is as vast as the river is the English translations. And it's sort of quite obvious that that it's a I guess a contemporary group that still sounds like it has uh, very much Egyptian folk um, stylings. I guess. Um, yeah, I mean, nothing <clears throat> Nothing to my ears gives it away that it's mm. written in the 80s. No. I mean, it's mm. harmonically, it's there's not much to it. There's no kind of like bass line. It's not like a contemporary 80s song with a yeah. cool bass. It's kind of a drumming with some sort of improvisatory lines over the top on traditional instruments. I mean, I wondered whether it's similar to to having, um, say, like a Paul Kelly or, or mm. um, you know, people like that in Australia for, for our Australian listeners. Yeah. Um, who you know absolutely contemporary um, composers, but very much right in a in a sort of folk style. Yeah. Um, this is just the Egyptian version of that. Yeah, no, I I think that's totally right. From what I know, which is uh, not very much about the musicians of the Nile, but they were part of the the WOMAD um, scene. That's the World Music Festival, and so I think there's you know world music as a as a giant scare quotes genre because of course world music is literally every music that's ever been written is world music (laughs) um it's a it's a very strange genre indeed but it had as a self-consciously capital letters genre had a moment in the 80s and the 90s and so i think if you were really into that scene you might recognize this music i think it's probably conceivable but you know, yeah. Egypt. Well, I mean, this is in terms of recognizing it, Dan. I mean, I, we've gone onto their Spotify, mm. you know, page, mm. um, and and this these two songs are essentially their two biggest hits. 
Uh, I, they, yeah, they, really. These wow. are these are dance floor bangers. Yeah. <laughs> <that they've laughs> I think I think I think there was one that is 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 slightly slightly more popular. But um, so look, you know, not just a two hit wonder. But I, you know, I mean, I I guess the the important point is that yeah, like you know, Egypt obviously had pop music that sounded like the rest of the world's pop music at the time and so this is very i I, yeah i would say like a like a a throwback to to a a folk inspired musical setting yeah and look look to to be a little bit serious um about you know egyptian folk music i mean look traditionally and of course you know this is not totally set um but you know a, a typical egyptian folk group uh would normally consist of sort of an an oud player um a nay player and this is sort of like the the buzzy sort of flute um or or oboe sort of sound and uh, a kanun player which is like a plucked i guess like a harp ish Mm -hmm. and often there would be sort of i guess in later times once western music and i'm talking in the 1800s um was introduced into into egypt um so much so that um, you know, Verdi's um, Aida was was premiered in Cairo in 1871, mm-hmm. but it was around those sort of 1800s that you had had Western instruments introduced, and from then on you had single um, single fiddles, single violins, um, sometimes things like cellos in there. So you've got sort of a lot of string instruments, and then often a buzzy um, sort of wind instrument over the top, and then of course the percussion that we've been talking about a lot, and that tends to be the the basis of a lot of the Egyptian folk music. So choosing this band is not as ridiculous as maybe we're making it sound. Mm. Um, they certainly have all of the elements in there that that makes it sound traditional. So mm. it's a it's an interesting choice though. I always think it's sort of cool to to unravel some of these these little ideas mm. in here. And look, it kind of begs the question. I mean, if that's the traditional sound of Egypt, I mean, how? Maybe Dan, you can speak to this. How do we get from something like that to the score yeah. and the sound in Hollywood of of what we hear in things like The Mummy or Stargate, or even going back as far as Lawrence of Arabia? Yeah, I think this is really interesting because I've been doing a lot of research in my academic life about um, the sound of various non-European, non-American geographies in Hollywood and how that sound is kind of arrived at. And sometimes it's kind of authentic and sometimes more more often than not, it's sort of an invention of the, the film composers. Uh, you know, one of the most notorious is actually American, the, the, the sound of Native Americans in especially the classic Westerns, the most stereotypical cliches, four beats, emphasis on the first, the kind of dun, 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 which is all over the classic Western and has got nothing to do with Native American music at all. Um, <laughs> so it's a, it's a really good question. And so, you know, I think partly we're looking at influence from those sword and sandal films that are actually, I think Andrew mentioned, or maybe it was Nick mentioned earlier, um, Miklos Roja, the El Cid's, the um, Ben Hur's, the Quo Vadis films that all, and in fact, Miklos Roja researched pretty extensively what Roman music might have sounded like for those ancient sword and sandal films. And basically the answer is we don't really know, but we know what Greek music sounded like. And so a lot of that is kind of inspired by by that. Um, we don't really know what Roman music sounded like, but it's sort of taking guesses about Egyptian. And there is some music that we know a little bit about, but we know the music was really important. <laughs> 
to the ancient Egyptians. And so actually the interesting thing is that that particular almost like Middle Eastern sound that is very persistent in film music. I mean, you mentioned Lawrence of Arabia before is partially something that's been emphasized through film. But it goes way back beyond Lawrence of Arabia to, uh, you know, films like uh, The Thief of Baghdad, uh, both the the remake in the 50s and the original in the 1920s. So there was a there was a you know of course there were soundtracks written for silent films and they were performed by orchestras and pianists and such in 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 screenings and there is a soundtrack for that and that does contain similar ideas. So I went down this huge rabbit hole of where does this Middle Eastern kind of sound, even though you know. Egypt is in uh, North Africa. Where does that come from? And I think in part, it comes from Western ideas of the Arabesque and the kind of Arabic music. Um, like a romanticized lens, yep. sort of looking at it? Yeah, but also, so, I mean, one of the, the key things is that the Ottoman Empire in particular was a, a major force when a lot of the classical musicians were writing music and um, there was the, the the siege of Vienna in the 1600s and then that kind of entered folklore in, in you know, um, that was about as far as the Ottomans got in Europe was, was Vienna or close to Vienna. And of course, Vienna was a massive musical city. So a lot of the great sort of classical composers, people like Mozart yeah. wrote what they thought was or what they they kind of suggested was was turkish music um or oh like mozart's rondo alla turca exactly and in in fact yeah. we can kind of demonstrate in part what what that sound was if you you can play that on piano can you nick mozart's rondo alla turca is this one You kind of get mm. that idea, and I guess it's probably just those little those little ornamentations of the accidentals in that scale. Absolutely, and you know what else it is uh, that I was thinking this through a lot of the music and even the the chant, the Imhotep chant that we were talking about. It's actually a rhythm as well. So it's dum, 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 which is very simple. Okay. Um, and uh, the idea is that this is because uh, during this this war, where the Ottoman Empire got very close to to Vienna, they would hear the military bands. And then when the war was oh. over and a treaty was reached, there were kind of military bands sent in kind of peace and celebration for resolving this conflict. And so that just kind of entered kind of Western musical imagination as what Turkish, what yeah. Ottoman music sounded like, what the sound of Arabia was. To the degree where <laughs> some pianos were actually manufactured in the 19th century, so in the 1800s, many centuries later, with what they called a Turkish stop, which was a, a pedal, like you have a pedal, you know, foot pedal of sustain or whatever on a, on a piano, yeah. and you you press it and it would just, it would um, basically thump the... Um, the soundboard of the piano and create basically the sound of a bass drum. Oh, wow. So that, and, <laughs> and, and so, you know, it, it's quite different from what we think of, especially in Hollywood now as being, you know, um, stereotypically Arabian music. But that was the, that was the kind of idea that there was that rhythm, dum, 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 which is just, you know, uh, the sound of a bass drum in a military marching band. And, and that was... Yeah, how odd. Yeah, anyway, so... <laughs> 
And do you also think that, I mean, maybe composers like Rimsky-Korsakov, you know, Russian composer who influenced the sound of, of that lush Hollywood romantic film music, you know, wrote pieces like Scheherazade, which is sort of, you know, Arabian Nights, the exotic inverted commas things he did in that may have been playing around with these sort of Eastern sounding scales. And, and that has also, through the lushness of his orchestrations, has found its way into into the Hollywood mm. musical language as well. I yeah, uh, absolutely. And, uh, you know, it, I think I think it's just, it's so interesting because it's such a definable sound. You, 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 it's so clear when a Hollywood composer is trying to conjure up this, this sound of Arabia, the sound of the Middle East, yeah. the sound of, you know, folding Egypt into that. And and it's actually, you know, in comparison to some other musical cliches, which are definitely Hollywood's own this one, I think, is a rare instance of it being a, a much deeper kind of um, almost musical misunderstanding um, that, that predates <laughs> film music, but that film music nonetheless is kind of um, yeah. folded in with. <laughs> it's, yeah. But I mean, music, film music has always been about associations yeah. with the past. And as we move forward, you're always moving forward with a foot in mm. the past in film music and kind of dragging it with you until someone comes and completely changes and breaks out of it and especially as well you know particularly with hollywood it's all about the simple shorthand you know in casablanca the french walk on screen so the marseillaise plays you know like that's yeah (laughs) max steiner was just (laughs) the least least amount of work to get the effect of what you want across yeah (laughs) yeah in hollywood absolutely I i think it's also i mean ultimately music is a language um languages have conventions and whether egyptians in the past played these scales i mean that's obviously not a thing but the fact that the second you hear it you know what's going on i mean that's it's its own thing um it's become the its own sort of musical language and now the audience knows what's going on in the same way that visually there there are all sorts of cues to show you that you're you're watching an adventure or it's a love scene i mean like there are so many mm-hmm. um sort of languages going shorthand, on yeah um, and shorthand yeah there. and and this is sort of just a musical version of that so well look angie you mentioned scales i mean i think we could talk a bit about the scales that are used in a film score like the mummy well, it's time to have our vegetables um, yeah. let's <laughs> Talk scales. <laughs> <laughs> so look, let's look at one particular the, the camel race, all right, where you've basically got um, a little groove set up in the percussion and the lower part of the orchestra, and the strings are just it's it's kind of they're just doing scales around this Egyptian sounding thing. It almost sounds like I'm just noodling and making up. Like that, That's the exact mm-hmm. line pretty much that, that they played. And one thing before I play it, I want to mention is that Goldsmith, and we haven't mentioned this yet, Goldsmith did another film in 1999, which I reckon he just phoned in because it sounds so much like The Mummy. Um, and that's called The 13th Warrior, which was a Michael Crichton novel, as big flop star, and Antonio Banderas. Um, but I've done a bit of a back-to-back between this camel race and a bit in The 13th Warrior. And it's like he just kind of picked up the book and then just went to the next scoring <laughs> took, took session. Took the sheet music to another studio. <laughs> Almost.
Here's the 13th Warrior. I mean, it's got the tambourine, it's got that dun dun in, in the bass and the strings just... I dispute this, Nick. I think they're clearly very different. The 13th Warrior <laughs> is, I'd say, at least several BPM slower than the other. <laughs> <laughs> I know, it's like he doesn't have any ears, Dan. Yeah. <laughs> it was obviously slower. Yeah. Um, Nick's lost it. Mm. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but you know, obviously, there that 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 eastern scale that he's kind of using is is almost identical, and you know even the love theme I talked about before, you know that. Um, have a listen to this little bit from the Thirteenth Warrior. It almost could be like a, a sister version of of that love theme from the Mummy. Same harmonic change down a step. You know, it's not even really a melody, it's just mm. a shape. I mean, and that's all you need. I mean, look, the 13th Warrior is about Vikings and sort of Beowulf. Mm. So maybe it's not quite in the same geographical area, but it's yeah. still conveying a sort of exoticism not normal to traditional, inverted commas, Europe. Another scale which gets a feature later in the film is what we call the octatonic scale. This is my favourite scale, Nick. Pogo loves the octatonic scale. <laughs> now, just to give you a quick course on why it's called the octonic octatonic meaning uh, uh, like octopussy um, <laughs> yeah, I, now I know exactly what it is yeah. <laughs> my favourite Bond films um, <laughs> has eight limbs I, I um, think so octatonic would make a notes. great superhero villain name actually yeah yeah wasn't there Dr. Octopus there is Spider-Man? Dr. Oct yeah, yeah maybe that's all I'm yeah, thinking yeah, yeah. I don't know anyway a traditional scale actually only kind of have seven notes because the the note you arrive at at the top of the scale is the same as the one you start at. So if I play a major scale, that's seven notes, and then boom, that top one, even though it's an eighth note, it's not, we've already heard it at the bottom. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Okay. Now in an octatonic scale, we have eight notes before we reach the completion. So it's sort of like nine. And it's, an interesting scale because it's made up of a half step followed by a whole step and then it just repeats. So half, whole, half, whole, half, whole. And it could also be the reverse. So whole, half, whole, half, whole, half. If I'm confusing you, I'll play you what I mean. So this is, a, this is going a whole step, then a half step and repeating it. It's pretty kooky, right? Mm. And, and here's, here's doing the reverse, starting at a half step and then going a whole step. And it's, a, it's an unusual sound. And the reason it's so kind of cool is because it kind of never has any grounding. It never kind of stops in like a kind of home key. And you can kind of just play around with it forever. And Andrew, I'm sure you can talk to, to its use in jazz. 
in terms of its sort of cyclic nature. This 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 is one of the this is one of the reasons why I love it so much is because it it has this combination of whole steps and half steps. It doesn't suggest any one key. Um, it suggests all sorts of keys, I guess. And for that reason, um, and oh, and importantly, there are only two of them. There are only two scales. You only have to learn them, you know, twice, um, as opposed to other ones where you've got 12 different keys of the same scale. You only have to learn two of these. And you can sort of, they they can be placed over all sorts of chords. So if you get into trouble. You can jam forever. Yeah, you can jam on them forever. And it sounds really cool. It, sounds, it can sound really angular. It can sound sort of chromatic, which is sort of the bebop style. And even the fact that they have the eight notes in it, they sort of, I don't know, there's even a rhythm within them when you play them. Um, I don't know how else to say it. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's, uh, it's, a great, it's a great scale. It is. And look, I'll give you an example in context in The Mummy. So here's a bit towards the end of the film where lots of mummies are coming to life and those sort of skeleton knights with the flat top haircuts come out um, looking for Rick and just have a listen to the, the sort of xylophone style scales that are running up and down. That's all that. You know, and I definitely can't hum you where the you know where where home base is on that. It just sort of sounds like it's anything, anywhere. Um, and it yeah. almost, I mean, look, I, I'm not a composer, but um, Nick, you might be able to tell me that you know the counter melody that's going on underneath that, the brass. I mean, could you essentially just write anything and it would still sort of make sense? Yeah, pretty much, pretty much. I mean, look, in this case, there's a lot of tritone. Um, kind of usage so they're kind of pivoting between that halfway point you know etc etc look here's another example where it really just sounds like the string players are doing technical work like their warm-up exercises just up and down up and down So, all right, everyone warmed up. Let's do a take. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure he just handed that over to um, Alexander Courage and said, um, just do some scale stuff there. And um, yeah. you know. <laughs> and look, it's, it's great for film composers because you can just, if you're not quite sure what to say, mm. like musically, you can kind of just cycle and, and kind of, it's like treading water mm. in, in, in a musical version. And look, I hear stuff like that and I'm instantly harkened back to films like Back to the mm. Future, which um, I'll play this, this classic scene where Doc's waiting for Marty, you know, damn, 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 when he keeps looking at his watch and all the string ones that go, all based on the octatonic scale and even the little passage afterwards. <laughs> rooted in the octatonic scale. Yeah. And again, just that great kind of 
you know, treading water, you know, what's going to happen? I'm not sure either which way it'll go. And of course, if um, if listeners haven't checked out our Back to the Future episode, um, it's one of the earlier ones we did, wasn't mm. it? Mm-hmm. Um, it was, Back yeah. before we were famous, Nick. Um, <laughs> 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 well, I mean, speaking of famous, do you guys know that if you're a Hollywood composer and you, you use enough of the octatonic scale, you actually get invited to the, um, the octatonic club. Oh, good. Great. Have you? And that's a, um, it's like a nightclub in Istanbul. And if you, if you, I'm not, I'm, you guys think I'm lying. Yeah, yeah, you? I do. Yeah. You I think do. I'm lying. It's not. <laughs> so <laughs> if, if that happens, you get one of your cues chosen by DJ Octatonic, who runs this club, wow. and he does like a, a trance remix. Yeah, right. So do you guys want to hear oh, no. the Jerry Goldsmith one that oh, they yeah, do? I do, I do. I do. Yeah. You do? <laughs> <laughs> So this is um, Jerry's official inauguration into the Octatonic Club. Check it out. DJ Octatonic. <laughs> that is scarily effective, though. Like, I don't feel like you've done much damage to the music in order to get there. Oh, sorry, that DJ Octatonic's no. done much damage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, but maintain the illusion, mm, Dan. Mm, Come on. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> well, I said before, it's like a rave, yeah. you know, some of that yeah. stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, mm. That's great. I, I, that's a new genre. Has anyone, anyone uh, mind that? Can we do that? Can we start releasing albums of... Just putting um, beats on. It's almost things. like a Bollywood dance sequence. Or something, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> well, it all started back in episode one with uh, John Williams's Macarena and Indiana Jones. Oh, that's true. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. Mm. All right, wait, what you really are? This is what is the, with this episode, Dan? Where you just want to point out all of the things <laughs> oh, that we do every episode? You did that just a moment ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it was cool when I did. Okay, it. all right. Yeah, <laughs> All right, gents. Look, we're 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 running a short on time. Mm, okay, so, okay. let's not forget this is a horror film, yes. mm. The Mummy. So we better look at just a couple of examples of some actual horror score. I have been horrified through a large portion <laughs> of this. So yes, let's let's hear it. Because everything is being quite thematic at, uh, so far, but there are some scary moments, especially in like that sort of second third of the film. Jerry was a big pioneer of of electronics in his scores, and um, even combining this sort of choir electronics and some horror elements check out this little kind of dazzling bit It's almost like a distorted glass shimmer or something. It's it's a really weird kind of electronic kind of like static, glass static. Or don't something. you think that that's that's like full eighties mode? And I don't mean that mm. it's eighties like rock or anything, but there's, there's it's like eighties movie scoring. And obviously, you know, like I said, this is towards the end of Jerry Goldsmith's 
career um, or his life. Um, it's it's bringing some of that. I mean, look, it's old fashioned in that there's there's the old fashioned Hollywood vibe going on, but then that's even though it's awesome and I think it works great. It's like here's here's something from twenty years ago, you know. Mm. Like it's uh, <laughs> mm. it's sort of that that synthy horror thing, you know. Mm. Um, thinking yeah. back to you know uh, Wendy Carlos or I mean, he does similar stuff. Not to return too much to Star Trek, but with the Borg music, um, the kind of synthy horror stuff. Um, there's quite a bit of that. The, the percussion again, you know, as well. Dan, you mentioned earlier those sort of sliding brass motifs, which yeah become a sort of uh, like an orchestral moan. I mean, so simple, but effective. And, and in the cinema with a lot of action cues going on, when you kind of get to these sections of the film where it is more sort of tiptoeing through dark tunnels, those effects can be quite overwhelming and really put a chill down your spine. Mm. I think as well, though, the fact that it's an effect that is quite muddy and it's indistinguishable, it sort of, you know, mirrors the the visual effect of of kind of those sort of horror sequences where it's in the dark you're not quite sure what you're looking at to the same degree it's quite hard to distinguish individual trombones against each other um there mm. and so it becomes kind of you know yeah the the well blurred i mean mm. the sound is blurred and that's sort of same with your emotions yeah. and 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 the clarity of vision you know mm-hmm. remember there's that guy who drops his glasses and he can't mm. see and the the lens is all a bit kind of fuzzy um similar similar things mm. like that um is this bit where the strings do a similar thing but up the top of the register where they're kind of sliding down and almost exact same thing was used in stargate so i sort of wonder if there's a bit of a temp tracking kind of idea that that crept in to use these sort of droopy sinewy strings this is Stargate. You know, it's that monotonous repetition with sort of like ripping layers of skin mm-hmm. off you, tearing off yeah. band-aids or something. Yeah. And finally, I want to play the bit where the locusts arrive, you know, the plague, the plagues of Egypt, where you can really just hear the bees flying at you and then he just brings in the low brass just to kind of kick in the, the dramatic seriousness of, of the threat. I, I love how this, this just gets randomly biblical. Out of, don't you yeah. reckon it's like they, <laughs> it, it, it was sort of jarring I mean once again watching it again recently mm. I was like I mean cool but um, yeah. it's it's almost like you're supposed to know about these the ten plagues of Egypt oh of course I learned about that in you know, yeah I don't know but but even like um, thematically it sort of doesn't make any sense you know because there really isn't any any um, you know Old Testament mm. vibe at all in fact it's quite the opposite it's it's you know none of that stuff and and then suddenly they start throwing in Old Testament you know, into it and it's like, oh, okay. <laughs> mm. Mm. 
<laughs> I love that snare drum yeah. that it's sort of doing a snare roll and it sort of sounds like wings, mm. you know, lots and lots of tiny little wings going. It's great. One of my favorite moments is actually when they, and it's an unusual musical moment because it sounds a bit different to anything else in the film, is when they discover that room full of treasure where they kind of mm. you know, have those mirrors that bounce the light from one to another and it sort of reveals all these jewels. And just have a listen to the, it's really angular in, in what the melody is doing above the harmonies. It's like a fantastic, glorious moment that is not quite right. I feel like there's moments in Indiana Jones that have mm. some kind of big moment of revelation, especially in like Temple of Doom. There's an exoticism and a grandeur, but in a different kind of harmonic musical language. And it's probably just that. Mm. You know, that's that's in tune, but that first one. Mm. It sort of takes its time getting there and then. Yeah. And the second it gets to home, they instantly move on to the next thing, create more tension again. Um, yeah, yeah, it's a really sort of interesting musical, musical little moment there. Mm. Look, let's finish off with Imhotep being finished, <laughs> <laughs> which, is, which is his death. <laughs> um, it's a it's a wonderfully dramatic moment, and again, Andrew's favorite choir mm. comes in. Yep. And I always hear this sequence and kind of get the giggles because the choir is like they're moaning and they're going, uh, 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 and it's really kind of building and up to this sort of this climax. And then the horses come along, the, the ghost horses, and sort of suck his soul out. And I, I laugh because it <laughs> it reminds me of a different film by Goldsmith, which has a a different style of moaning leading to a different style of climax. <laughs> and um, <laughs> I, want, we have I wondered when it was going to happen, Dad. Um, <laughs> okay. Now we have children listening to this, so I'll try and I'll try and be as delicate as I can. But anyway, here's the end of Vimotep as heard in the Mummy. Right, quite a dramatic peak there. Now, go back five, six, seven, eight years and we get a film called Basic Instinct where basically I think this is a fantastic bit of scoring because it is, it is lovemaking but done very creatively with the orchestra. And you can tell there, I don't need to explain the scene, I'm sure you can imagine what's happening, but you can really feel the orchestra doing a similar, a similar thing.
yeah, I mean, it's 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 it does feel like. I mean, if we you know take a big odd it step, it reaches back, a capitulation. You know, it's you know, sort of heart beating or or breathing or, but I mean, it does it does create a whole bunch of tension and and, and there's someone's demise at the end. I mean, that's the you know happens in both films, I guess. Um, <laughs> yeah, so, no, yeah. no, true, and you know, um, it's not like there isn't precedent for linking uh, both kinds of. Climax, as you mentioned, with you know the French call it le, le petit mort, the little death, and uh, it's, it's like <laughs> Wagner. Don't you start, Dan? Well, I was like, just gonna <laughs> Wagner, Wagner when Tristan and his old, the famous Liebestod, lo- love death. Yes, I thought it was called Menage. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Look, all all we'll say is if if that's what um. That experience sounds like for you in uh, in Basic Instinct. Then you should you should get that checked out. <laughs> oh we should cut God. that out. We should definitely cut that. Out. <laughs> Drive to your nearest local record shop, like Michael yeah. Douglas, dodging yeah. all the cars. <laughs> and then, um... Look, guys, I think that has brought us to the end of the Mummy. Um, one of the more interesting ways to finish an episode. <laughs> we hoped that you you enjoyed yourself throughout this fest, mm. and if you did, please go ahead and press subscribe and write us a review on iTunes. Um, it certainly helps us get the word out there. Of course, if you have any questions about this score or you've got any comments, maybe there's some things um, that you'd like clarified or maybe, and this is actually a really great thing that often happens, um, we have many fellow nerds out there in the podcast sphere and often people write in and say, you know, give us some more information, which we love reading about. So so hit us up on uh, Twitter at Art of the Score, Instagram, Facebook, also on that email, contact at artofthescore.com.au. We'd love to hear from you, um, love to nerd out with you. So until next time, I'm Andrew Pogson and that's Dan Golding. It's uh, been a pleasure. And he's Nicholas Buck. Yeah, more tip. <laughs> and this was Art of the Score.